This is Isaka's Page to Podcast. Thanks everyone for joining us today. I'm John Brandt, Director of Professional Practices and Innovation here at Isaka. Joining me today about his recently released article, Managing Security Across Disparate Database Technologies, is Adam Conkey. Adam is Cybersecurity Architect for Charter Next Generation. Adam, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. It's an honor to be on the podcast. Well, I I always enjoy these things. This is probably one of the most pleasurable things that I do as part of my job here. So if you just would, for our listeners, a little bit about yourself, your background, some level setting for our viewers. Sure. So I've been in IT now for about 15 years. I come from an IT operations background, so help desk. I, I spent a lot of time in incident management in big and small companies, spent some time as an IT auditor. But you know the, the better things about me is that I'm a father. I like to read. I like to play video games and go camping. Uh, but you know I, I make my money in cybersecurity right now, both as a cybersecurity architect. I've been in cybersecurity for three years, going on four. And I've recently started my own business, the Excel Security Consultancy. And this article was its maiden project. So just a bit about me, always happy to connect with anybody on LinkedIn if you want to talk anything IT audit or cybersecurity. Well, excellent. That's a, you know, a lot of a lot of us have come up through the proverbial ranks, right? And and come up and and I found your article interesting in the sense because yeah, you know, I'll be honest with you, like I haven't touched a database in a hot minute. Really don't have a lot of desire to do it. But you know, your unique background and skill set, right? It forces something to the surface that has to be addressed here. So I'm hoping that our our viewers uh, have some good takeaways from this. So let's just, we're going to jump right in here. Let's talk about what malicious activities databases are, are primarily susceptible today in the modern threat landscape. Yeah, a lot of times they're left in a insecure default configuration. So you, you get them out of the box from a vendor or a, a software installation source. And whether it's a insecure networking service Sometimes there are things like test databases or default ports, things of that nature that are open, default usernames, passwords. They're just laying around for anybody to come along and log into the database, start extracting data, jump from one database to the other, and just start stealing or mangling, destroying data. Insecure default configuration that's always going to be a you know low hanging fruit, so to speak. So you know, you just something you said there just prompted a, a thought here about you know more times than not, production environments have a development or test equivalent, right? And you and you were just and you just highlighted that through your experience and you know and the things that you do day to day is that pretty common and and if so do you find that the the development slash test environments are just forgotten about and is the data equally as sensitive like are they mirror images or do you just think that more times than not they're just focused on the configuration user interface or whatnot and then worried about making sure that the production side is most accurate. Yeah, I think it, it can even be a case where 
there, there really isn't a test or dev environment initially. And then for whatever reason, you need to run a test case to see how something will react in prod. You spin up a test database. Um, and then you, you do your tests and you forget about it and just leave it as it is. Uh, we, we find things very often in the security space where, you know, security is a, a foregone thought or, you know, it's, it's not really thought about at all. People are just trying to do work and get work done. And then they forget about these insecure environments they set up and leave behind. So definitely it's prevalent. Not every database is going to come with the database software won't always come with an available test or dev database, but often they do. So along that line of thinking there, right? Because, you know, one of the things all too often, right? And you just, you hit a, a point and this is kind of the importance of the integration of security at the early onset, right? When we talk IT operations, more time, they're, they're just very responsive to whatever the business needs are, right? I think it's fair to say that, you know, not there's a large number of enterprises out there, right? Companies, businesses, organizations that just don't have robust teams either. So when you, you find a lot of folks are just kind of, they're really strapped tight, right? And it could be the ops person is wearing the, the, you know, quote unquote security hat or they're, you know, that, or the loan security person is just overwhelmed that they can't really inject themselves into the process. So how do you guard against that, right? We hear things like DevSecOps, right? But my fear is in going back to my, you know, my background and when the, the database folks, database teams were, it used to be they weren't integrated really on the services side anyway. And I assume like, you know, we expect that to be the case, but is that a fair assumption? Yeah, oftentimes you do find under budgeted, under resourced security teams where too few people are wearing too many hats across various functions and it leads to gaps in security or the deprioritization of security when it comes to things like applications and databases and networks. You know, what to do about it. I mean, you, money is always great, but I think setting a good tone at the top, at the leadership level, you know, security is not going to become important in an organization until it's important to leadership. Sometimes that takes education from security leaders, the security department or executives to help them understand what the risks are. You know, always taking a, a risk approach to everything can help uh, shaping conversations around risks as far as if we don't manage these apps and these environments properly we don't have enough people to do the security priorities and accomplish the objectives of security you're going to be breached you're going to fail in security and you're just going to have a bunch of problems so again you know tone at the top uh, education for the executive class and helping them understand why Security is a business enabler and not just a cost of the bottom line. I think that goes a long way. So you just brought up education and I went back many, many years in my mind to a class that myself and a former colleague, we had to go, it was a MySQL class. And I'll tell you, I remember it being very painful, but our folks that are implementing databases, or if you're bringing in new people, there was like a gap in the resource for that. Is it common nowadays 
for somebody to go get the vendor training? Or is it one of these things that you're using online resources, just trying to spin up? Because, you know, when I think about that, when I went through that, yeah, I was I wasn't in security at the time, right? I was more, you know, I was act, at, actually at the time I was an instructor and I had an operational role. But if I think about it, if they were still using that, not only is it valuable to have the ops person go to learn the ins and outs, but also the security person as well to go through as well. Because if they've not been exposed to that, they might ask some of the right questions. Yeah, I can't speak to how it's been over the last, you know, 10, 20 years, but I know even some of the developers I've worked with recently, they are, you know, it's like, hey, I just got out of college. I just started coding things. You know, in in some places, there's not a developer role-based training curriculum or program in place, and then they just get to work. You know, here's this app. This is the environments you're responsible for. This is what we need to accomplish from a, a development code functionality perspective, get to work. And then, you know, it's it's putting the the square in the round hole. We're just going to jam it in and make it work. And again, security just becomes <laughs> something that um, either someone has to come in in a focused role and be a security champion to push education for developers or Luckily, or hopefully, you do get developers and engineers that are versed in security and know what the bad things are. And OWASP top 10, that, that's the things that developers and database admins should be learning because uh, those are the, the security challenges for databases. It's going to be those top 10 areas of web application security. Yeah, no, those are all great points. And it just, you know, at the end of the day, and I think it speaks to how broad this greater IT industry, there's so much out there that no one program out there can cover it all, right? At the end of the day. And, um, and that we could have a whole nother conversation on, you know, the importance of just in time training, right? And stuff like that, instead of these formal long production programs that by the time you get out anyway, like how much did you really retain unless it was cascading and really built upon one another. But we're going to go back to the article here. And I appreciate, you know, some of that context and everything, because I do think, it, you know, journal articles such as yours, they only cover the topic, but there's that context that we need to add around it, right? To basically kind of set the stage and really talk about how broad the issue is. So in your article, you gave a lot of different recommendations. You had talked about uh, ingredients for secure database configuration. What are the most important ones of that? So, yeah, you want to hide the database as much as possible. And that means it's it's access port on the network, even what some of its names or, um, you know, sometimes the the server and infrastructure itself, it's it can be pretty obvious what a server is just by its name. It's security through obfuscation. It isn't the best, you know, a lot of people don't even accept it as a security control, but, you know, it's better than just leaving everything as the default. So like MySQL, for instance, I I think it's always accessible on port 3306. Well, if somebody does an NMAP scan against you and they see 3306, they can immediately assume they're dealing with a database on top of any other fingerprinting that they do. So making it as hard as possible uh, from a, you know, hiding the database perspective helps. And then we, we touched on default usernames and passwords. 
oftentimes if you come to a login page or something, you can just get on Google and, you know, what's the default username and password for this or that. And you can just log right in or attempt to brute force or guess your way into the database. And then it's game over. You want to put pitfalls and traps and trips in front of any adversary that's trying to get into your environment. So hiding the database, changing default usernames, passwords, disabling unneeded services, and anything along that line, it's going to improve security greatly. You know, you, you touched on that, uh, you know, about obfuscation. And, and the reality is, right, is to rely on it solely is not appropriate. And I think people would widely agree with that statement. But it is a tool in the toolbox. And to me, it speaks to the greater OPSEC, right? Operational security considerations that need to be taken. And, and this goes, this expands far beyond just databases. It's the type of information that, you know, folks are putting out there on their web presence. Because to your point, if you're a bad actor and you're fingerprinting and you're looking at combing the web, because open source intelligence is alive and well, right? And you could get so much information off of that. And, and increasingly, I think, you know, maybe if we did a better job in that too, we'd find, because you you hear reports that there's still stuff that's being produced today that you can't change the default names or the passwords. And, and you would think by this part of our, so far down the line that we'd be a lot better at that. And, and you know, and your manufacturers would be doing a better job. Because truthfully, until it becomes an overwhelming norm and, and folks stop buying products because of limitations like that, arguably they're not really incentivized to change their behavior, right? No. I mean, everybody has a production-first mindset. I need to produce products. I need to get them to the market as quickly as possible for the cheapest amount of money as possible. And then we will think about the ramifications of unsound security afterwards. It's any any industry you look at that that is the the way to go. Uh, you know, it's all about profits and money. And then we we deal with fallout as we come across it. So let's talk about database encryption, right? Everybody knows, like you know, for, encryption is favored, right? You talk about this in your article. How should you be handling it? What are the potential pitfalls? Any do's and don'ts here that you could give to our viewers? Yeah, you definitely do encrypt uh, your logs, encrypt the database at rest, use the strongest encryption algorithm and ciphers that are available to you that doesn't impact performance. Uh, it's usually AES 256-bit encryption at a minimum. If you can go higher, it always helps. Your logs or some of the, the transactional journals from the database, those are can potentially be used to restore the database. So if they are captured in transit and they are unencrypted, someone can get a copy of your database or the, the information stored in the database that way. So definitely poke and prod and make sure data at rest and data in transit is secured. If you can use column level encryption, you know, even your administrators, you can implement column and or row level encryption to make sure certain fields like credit card numbers are inaccessible even to your admins. So that's always a good practice. And most of the commercial products offer all of that. So by default, they're available to you. Usually you don't have to pay an extra license or anything. So just make sure you're fully utilizing what's already available to you to 
secure your databases. So speaking of encryption, you talked about, you know, some of the more prominent players that are out there uh, and it being included feature. Is it enabled by default or is it still not and you have to go through there and configure it? Um, I don't recall via the research, but some of it is, some of it is not. Like, I don't, I don't believe column level encryption is enabled by default in most of the enterprise commercial databases. Some of those things you need to set up like encryption keys and you need to assign those to tables and, and columns. Um, so yeah, you have to do some work on your part, but we provided the tools in the attached audit program to find out whether or not it's enabled. Okay, so you, you know you just touched on audit here. So talk to me the role that audit function within a company, how does that play in this whole process? I mean, it changes from company to company, but you know, not to be too much of a cliche, but you want to serve in that trusted, that trusted advisor role. And you want to, you know, sometimes it's good to just have a high level conversation with your auditees and not a full blown audit. Maybe understand, you know, is there really risk here or not? Sometimes your security or data administrator is going to be off of everything. And you can just, you know, using some of the things in our article or the attached audit program, you can, you know, just have a conversation with them. Uh, well, how do you manage database security? What sort, what sort of encryption protections do you enable? How broad are those? You know, we, we don't always need to audit things. Sometimes you can get a gauge of risk just by having a conversation with stakeholders on how they manage this or that regarding databases. Uh, but, you know, in the event where you're starting to get a bad feeling about this sounds really risky, then, yeah, you should start moving into determining how you can provide value via a database audit. So th that brings up my next question here is, is IT auditor role has has transitioned a lot over time. Right. And, you know, granted, everything's hyper focused on cybersecurity nowadays. But, you know, how how much does the auditor need to know about in, in context of, this, of your article here about databases in order to actually provide meaningful feedback and assistance? Yeah, databases are really complicated. They're not like uh, a printer, you know, to give a bad example. Um, they have hundreds of potential configuration variations. Uh, they can integrate with a lot of different systems and send data to a lot of different systems. So they, auditors need to know these systems very well. Before they even think about doing an audit, they should spend, you know, five to 10 hours reading the administrator guides from the product manufacturer. So when we when we did this article in the audit program, and my approach has always been, I'm going to learn the versions of the software that you're running, you know, what's the host operating system, what's the version of your database management system, and then I'm gonna spend a lot of time reading documentation from Oracle or Microsoft on the controls and how they work and what the potential options are. And then that is how you should be developing your audit programs. So spend less time talking to people and more time going over the documentation from the company that actually made the product, because that's where you're gonna understand where all the risks are. You know, people forget things, people try to cover things up. 
they try to lead you down a rabbit hole because they, you know, a lot of, sometimes people don't have time to deal with auditors. So you need to make sure you're on top of your game. And then if someone sends you for a loop or they don't know, or they don't know how to get the information that you already do. You know, that's a really great point, Adam. Uh, I'm thinking about this, right? Because largely speaking, operators of anything, they're looking for ways to make their job more efficient, right? How can I do a task faster? And when you were talking about like on the job training and whatnot, it's if you don't go through a formal vendor onboarding or a class, right? You know, then how many bad habits are you picking up along the way that potentially the audit function, you know, if the auditors are universally or we're largely doing that pre-work, right? You know, doing that investigative work before the, before they actually go in there to do an audit or to provide assistance to me, then it becomes a, a teaching moment of sorts, right? But it could also probably introduce some uh, some strife, right? Because I've been around a lot of IT types, especially the ones that, you know, not everybody's very receptive to the feedback or it's just leveraging that business as usual mindset that says, well, we do it this way because it allows us to do X, Y, and Z faster or whatnot. Yeah, you know, I I guess going back to that trusted advisor, cliche. I mean, how can you advise anybody on things you have no knowledge or expertise on? You know, you're not going to be providing good audit recommendations or advice to clients if you don't understand the technology that you're auditing. So you don't have to take a course. You don't have to take a certification. Do a Google search, get a hold of the administrator guide, and, uh, you know, spend a few hours reading about the subjects you're going to be auditing or having a conversation with the auditee about, and you're going to be much better off than you were had you just attempted to replay last year's audit or just go in, you know, half blind. You need to do some research and understand these platforms or else you're not going to have a very good outcome. Okay, very good. So, you know, besides the pre-work, talk to me about like audit procedures to help protect the databases. When I audit things, I attempt to get read-only access to the tools. A lot of auditees may not trust you enough to do that. Maybe you're just going to be requesting things. But as long as you're running just select statements, if you're not doing like DML statements or modification statements against the database, there's really no no harm in anything that you're asking for or auditing. Select statements are just going to pull data from the database they shouldn't have any impact on the overall security or the integrity of the data. So this brings up a good point, right? Because I remember, you know, I, in my role here at ISOC, I'm also now responsible for the IT audit practice area. So I think about this, and this conversation has come up a bit when we've been working on different career opportunities, right? Whether it's professional development or right now, you know, in your experience, is it, now, granted, so if you're an internal audit, then perhaps the likelihood of getting said read access is probably a little bit more common. If it was an external or even could be internal and you just and there's that lack of trust. Is it then that the auditor sitting side saddle next to a, a to a DD admin and saying, hey, run this query so I can see what it does? Yeah, that, I don't see any problem with taking that approach. 
I mean, you're basically just getting the information you're asking for from them faster. It'd probably be in everybody's best interest to do exactly that. That's probably the happy middle ground, actually. Yeah, no, and obviously, you know, the the only downside I think to that is like, you know, now you're carving out, you know, uh, human capital to support the audit, but that's not unusual to begin with. If there's any kind of inspection in any work role out there, right? There is. You just know that somebody's either escorting, getting you, the, facilitating, getting the information. So, you know, you've talked about database login a, a couple times so far. You know, and as from a security perspective, like we know it's important, but Beyond the fact that you should, we also know that there could be some system, you know, impacts or whatnot. But, you know, based on what you wrote in the article and your professional judgment and experience, why is database logging a key and important consideration? Yeah. So we're talking about like transactional logs, not logins, right? Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, a lot of those logs contain the actual statements that people are running to extract or insert data into the database. So not only can you use that data to restore and exfiltrate the database data, you can start getting an understanding from a footprinting perspective. All right, what tables exist? I keep seeing this this select from this table statement over and over again, or I keep seeing this username or, you know, these these credit card numbers. Uh, so the logs themselves are almost as valuable as the database itself, because depending on which one it is, you know, like a transaction log, it's containing all of the, the inserts and updates and deletions. So as far as like threat, you know, doing threat modeling against the database, understanding how big it is and what it contains, the logs are a very, very rich source of data. No, that's a good point. You know, one of the other thing is I, I was read your article here and something that stood out was, you know, the potential damage that the proxy user function actually, you know, the damage that can be done with it, right? And just how dangerous, right? And that goes for any kind of super user. But talk to me specifically to our listeners about that, because you really, I thought that was an important talking point, you know, about the need to really monitor that in, in like functions. Yeah, so the, the proxy user function, I, I don't recall which which one that was in. Was it in Microsoft or MySQL or? I think it was MySQL. Um, I guess regardless of which one it is, I'm sure each of them have some sort of similar feature, but it essentially allows you the potential to masquerade as another user. So as far as you know, maintaining accountability over who did what in the database, if you have proxy users enabled, and you don't have good compensating monitoring controls and you know access review controls around who can be a proxy user. Um, it and if a breach occurs or data theft or abuse occurs with a proxy user account, you're gonna have a very hard time proving who did what. You know, maintaining a lot of security or limiting or eliminating the use of proxy users is kind of uh, one thing that should be done early on. What's the business value to keep said capability in databases? Like, how is it being used? I don't recall. I think it's mostly for like applications. Okay. Like, if you need like an application to log in as said system user, I think okay. the proxy capability may allow you to do that. Or if or if differing 
people from one one location maybe there's multiple vendors that log in and they you don't want to spin up a bunch of different user accounts for them i don't recall the the reason off the top of my head but i think one of those might be true okay no fair enough and i you know and again it's one of those things like i just you know, we do a lot of things out there, you know, th- a lot of things perpetuate just because it's the way we've always done it. Right. And, and when we, when you talk about being able to, to either do an uh, investigation or, you know, reconstruct incidents to me, like anything like that makes it increasingly difficult to do that. And for the same reason we tell people don't use shared accounts, right? Like it, it cause it defeats, all the underpinnings of good IAM. Yes, it does. Okay. So with all that, you know, we've covered a lot of ground here today. In your view, what's the most challenging aspect of managing database security? I think it's going to be the size of the data. It's going to be the number of people and transactions. I think we were in the article there, we cited some some resources as far as if you were to put an internet exposed database out there and just allow connections to it, there's going to be hundreds of connections to it uh, within about 10 minutes. So, you know, trying to manage all of that traffic, even for something like a, a security information and event monitoring tool or any other network monitoring tool, if you're trying to, you know, make sense of all the transactions and user activity and the data transfers, um, it's probably going to fill up logs really quick. Logging is going to get really expensive. You can manage that with logging configuration, but just you know, managing all the traffic and where things that are coming in, things that are going out, is it appropriate? How do you tell? That's always going to be a challenge as far as is the transactional level operations on the database appropriate at any given time. Yeah, those, those are all great points. Like I said, it, you know, it, this was a good article. It kind of, we went a little bit more into the weeds with this journal article and really talking about an important thing because any more data is that, you know, data is being wielded in, you know, a lot of different ways. And, and there is a, a huge value component to it. And we know that we largely struggle to manage, you know, in this interconnected world that we're in. But Adam, I want to thank you for your time today. Great insights here. Uh, Anything you want to add that we didn't cover up to this point? No, I don't think so. I mean, just, you know, know what you're auditing. The producers of the technology, they give you everything you need to effectively audit your database environments and ensure they're secure. So know your auditee, but know your admin guide. That's all I'd say. Okay, very good. So if you want to read Adam's full article, click the link below in the description. I'm John Brandt. Thanks for tuning in. Thank you for joining us today for this episode of Page to Podcast. We hope you enjoyed this episode. 